Well, Amos 5 is really the, the, the centre, the central point of the whole prophecy of Amos. I'm not a great fan of splitting up Bible books it, sort of thematically and uh, showing how this is the introduction and this is another theme and then you've got a, a central chapter and then you've got uh, the, another bit and then you've got a conclusion. <clears throat> but uh, here in Amos, uh, I, I think that does work out and without going into too great detail, Amos 5 is the, the central point of the book in terms of its structure. So I think it, everything here really comes to a head. And it is, in fact, an appeal, an urgent appeal to repentance. But in verse 1, he says, I'm going to take up a lamentation. And this is definitely a funeral dirge. That's definitely what the word means. And this chapter is in that genre. This is uh, a funeral lamentation <clears throat> over someone who has died. Verse 2, the virgin of Israel has fallen and shall no more rise. She's forsaken. There is none to raise her up. She's finished, and <clears throat> so the appeal is to, to weep and mourn because Israel has died. And yet, were Israel dead yet at that time? Well, in a sense, they were because God had had enough. It's addressing the ten tribes, and God is saying that this is the end. But, but, this is the great paradox I, I find in how God works with us, that <clears throat> he can state his definite, decided intention, that Israel must be destroyed, and that's the end with them. And yet, he is open to, to their repentance. It's like with Nineveh. In 40 days, Nineveh shall be destroyed. No ifs and buts, no conditions, no sort of subclause that said, well, of course, if you repent, I'll rethink it. No, it was just stated, this is going to happen. But such is God's sensitivity to human repentance that actually when they did repent, he didn't do what he said. And the way that God operates like that, rather than saying, well, you know, if you, unless you repent, such and such is going to happen. But rather he also says, and he does say that sometimes, but he also says, this is going to happen, period. But when people then repent, he still will change. And so here, I, I think, it, it's the emphasis on that first word of the chapter. Hear this word. Listen. Listen, Israel, to this lamentation. Now, Israel at this time were pretty prosperous. Chapter 1, verse 1 says it was at the time of Jeroboam. Well, Jeroboam, according to 2 Kings 14, he expanded the borders of Israel. He was a bad king, but he, he expanded their border. They got military success. And you can see from the whole tenor of Amos, in particular this chapter 5, he's criticizing the abuse of the poor by the wealthy and the lack of justice that was going on. So it was a prosperous society, it was a successful society. And yet, he, he says here, that look, it's all finished, you're dead. But the point is, God can rethink what he's going to do. You see verse, verse 4, Seek ye me, and you shall live. But he's just said, you're permanently dead, and this is the whole point, we're having a, a funeral over you guys, because you're dead. And now he says, but actually, you can still live. And verse 6 maybe makes the point clear. Seek the Lord, and you shall live, unless, lest he break out like fire in the house of Joseph, and it devour, and there be none to quench it. So he's seeing, the, Amos is seeing the possibility that although God has said this is the case, 
he then says, verse 6, and this is the words of Amos, although they're inspired, but this is him speaking, not God, as it were. Seek the Lord and you shall live, lest he do this. You see, in verse 4, you've got God speaking in direct speech. Seek ye me and you shall live. And now, this is Amos' comment, yes, seek the Lord, verse 6, and you shall live. It's true what he says, and if not, he's going to break out like fire upon you. And then let's have a look at verse 15. Hate the evil and love the good, establish justice in the gate. It may be that the Lord, the God of hosts, will be gracious unto the remnant of Joseph. So it may be. Although the condemnation is absolutely certain on Israel, and from that point of view of the virgin that has already died, he's saying that, look, God's grace is such that he may still change. And you note how he talks about the remnant of Joseph. Well, Joseph is another way of talking about the ten tribes, because Ephraim was the son of Joseph, and Ephraim was the largest of the ten tribes. So he's, he's speaking about them as if they are down to a little remnant anyway. They're so different to the picture you get in 2 Kings 14 of the reign of Jeroboam, which is the time when Amos is prophesying. They were so prosperous. But he's saying it's as if you're already a remnant. You've already you're already right at the very end. Now, reading through Romans 1 to 8, particularly around chapters 3, 4 and 5, there's a whole load of legal metaphor that is used about our position before God, that we have been condemned because we sinned, and just one sin leads to condemnation and death. And we have received that condemnation. And let's not forget that. Because we're so used to God's grace and his forgiveness, let's not forget the situation as is, which is that we have sinned and have been condemned, quite rightly and quite justly, and we recognize that that was just. It is by a huge grace that the judge of all the earth goes back on a sentence that has already been passed. But he does that because he is so sensitive to human repentance. Now this is really just what we need, isn't it, at the time of uh, the breaking of bread, to think about repentance and the huge sensitivity of God to human repentance. Although, you know, repentance is more than, far more than, just a vague sense that I am not completely as I should be, and uh, a half-hearted idea of doing better. But repentance has got to be concrete and actual. Now, the big issue in Amos, and again you see it here in, in this chapter, is the lack of justice and the abuse of the poor. I mean, he, he says in verse 11, you trample upon the poor, and you take exaction from him of wheat, etc. Now, I used to think that Amos was, uh, as he says, just a sheep farmer, just some guy out there with the, with the herds, and he got this message from God to come and criticize the rich, and he sort of comes to town and tells them that... Uh, they're abusing the poor and they're no good, etc. That may be the case. But I'll share with you something that came to me this time round reading Amos. And it's in chapter 1, verse 1. Words of Amos, who was among the herdmen of Tekoa, the sheep farmers of Tekoa. That same word translated herdmen, or sheep farmers, is used in, and you may like to scribble this down, in 2 Kings 3, verse 4, about King Misha. He was a a herd man or a, a sheep farmer 
and he was able to pay tribute of thousands of sheep. So it doesn't necessarily mean that he, he, Amos was sort of out there wandering around the hills kind of thing. He may not have been poor himself, and I mention that because that gives so much more sort of bite to his critique of people who were trampling upon the poor and people who are not being just. It sort of has uh, a bit more edge to it if, in fact, he was not a dirt-poor person himself. Now, he says there in chapter 5, verse 11, that because they've done this, you build houses of hewn stone, but you shall not dwell in them. You planted vineyards, but you shall not drink, drink of them. This is right out of uh, Deuteronomy 28, the curses for disobedience. And the implication of that, of course, is that judgment was really imminent, although it didn't seem so at the time. Now, later on in Amos, he picks up these words uh, about building houses and vineyards and stuff in uh, chapter 9. And you may like to just look over there, chapter 9, verse 14. And I will bring again the captivity of my people Israel, and he's talking about the ten tribes, and they shall build the waste cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink the wine thereof and eat the fruit of their gardens. So then, I would say that what he's saying is that you're going to be judged, you're going to go into captivity, but I will revive your fortunes, I will bring you back from captivity, and you are going to uh, again rebuild the houses which the other guys built but didn't live in, and you're going to plant vineyards and drink the wine thereof, unlike the people of his time who planted vineyards and didn't drink the wine thereof. Now we're familiar with this idea in the context of Judah, the two tribes. They went to Babylon, it was God's intention to bring them back and to set up some kind of kingdom of God scenario, even though sadly most of them chose to stay in Babylon and when those who did return didn't really live up to the potential. But I would understand this chapter 9 verse 14 as implying that it was also actually in the potential purpose of God for the ten tribes also to have a similar return from exile. But they didn't, as, as we know. They went into captivity in Assyria and they never returned. So I think that God sets up potentials which may ne not necessarily ever be fulfilled. That is not to say that his word does not come true, but it is to say that these passages are not so much prediction as prophesying, that is speaking forth, what is possible and what was God's intention and, and his wish for them. And there's so many things that God has set up as potential in our lives but we may not realize that, <clears throat> that potential because of small-mindedness and because of the, uh, the immediacy of the moment uh, unfortunately becomes so paramount to us rather than a longer-term perspective. So I, I said that his big gripe was the lack of justice. He says in verse 14, uh, Seek good and not evil that you may live. Verse 15, love the good, establish justice in the gate, and it may be that God will be gracious to you. He said earlier, seek the Lord. Verse 4, the call was to seek the Lord, and here it is to seek good and to seek justice. Now, what does it mean then to seek the Lord? What it clearly does not mean is simply a mere abstract searching for kind of truth about God on the internet or in a concordance. To seek God in the end is something practical. It is to try in practice to be just. 
And I think the idea of seeking justice um, is, uh, is helpful because justice does often not just depend upon you and me. And all you can do is to seek it in a society and even in a brotherhood that is, that is not just in certain areas. Now, I think in life one has to choose the battles that we choose to fight, and the Lord Jesus and Paul did that. They made a big issue about some things, but other things, such as the demon issue, for example, and the teaching of Jesus, he, he let go. Now, I think that means that you, know, you shouldn't just get cranky about everything and everyone, but all the same... We need to ask ourselves what we are proactively doing to seek justice for the poor or marginalized. And I don't think that the poor in our context are simply the financially poor, but the marginalized. It could be those that are out of fellowship, those who have HIV, those who are asylum seekers, or, or whatever it might be. This is all a call to us to, to justice. And he was making this appeal at a time when people did not want to hear. Um, later on in chapter 7, verse 10, Amaziah the priest, uh, the priest of Bethel, verse 10 of chapter 7, sent to Jeroboam, king of Israel, saying, Amos has conspired against you in the midst of the house of Israel. The land is not able to bear all his words. And he basically says, verse 12, O prophet Amos, go, flee into the land of Judah, and there eat bread and prophesy there, but don't prophesy here any more. So then, I think that what, uh, what the society of his time was saying is, shut up, we don't want to hear this. And in fact, verse 13 of chapter 5, I think needs to be understood in that uh, context. Because it, as it's translated, certainly in the AV, it doesn't make a lot of sense within the context. So I don't like going for alternative translations of difficult verses, but I, I think verse 13 requires that. And it's been translated in one version like this. So at a time like this, a sensible person keeps quiet, for it is an evil time. And it could be that he's quoting there the words of Amaziah, the words of his opposition, who basically said, shut up and go away. And this is the problem, when you start seeking justice, when you say, well, you know, why don't we fellowship with that brother or that sister or with those people there? Or was that right that such and such decision was made? Don't rock the boat. And this is the trouble with uh, established Christian life, church life, ecclesial life, that over a period of time it does degenerate, I'm afraid, into a social club. That's, that's in a sense a good thing and it's, it's just normal how it's going to happen with groups of people who are together over a period of decades in their lives coming often from a similar historical background in spiritual terms so what he's being told here is look be quiet and he's quoting that yeah I'm appealing for justice yes and then he quotes the words of Amaziah that he alludes to that, that, he, uh, that are there in chapter 7 verse 10 at a time like this a sensible person should keep quiet a prudent person should just be silent and this is the trouble with the seeking justice, that none of us like to speak out. But because people do not speak out, then all manner of, of, of total injustice happens. And once injustice gets a grip into a community, it spreads. And it's like hypocrisy. Once a couple of people start acting out all the time, then eventually everybody else does, and the whole group ends up sort of 
unreal and not really in contact with each other and in the end the whole thing just, just breaks up. So then he warns them that look here, not kidding, really the end has come and your position is desperate. And make no mistake about it, our position is also desperate and we are saved by grace and we should have that uh, deep breath of gratitude all the time that we have been saved. It's rather like you have a lump and you go for an analysis and you fear the worst that it is cancer and then the, the thing that you greatly feared comes upon you and the specialist says, well I'm sorry to tell you that. And then you pray and you pray and you beg and you beg and you get a phone call. And it's the specialist calling on his cell phone. He says, I'm terribly sorry to tell you, I've made a most unprofessional mistake here. I'm calling you on my personal cell phone, sir, to deeply apologize. I was reading the, uh, I was reading the wrong case. Um, I'm terribly sorry, there was a bit of a mess with the papers. Ah, my secretary, she's hopeless. Uh, I'm very sorry, sir. Um, it's a swelling uh, that, that was caused, it, it seems, by, by an infection. And actually, what I meant to do was to give you this uh, antibacterial uh, prescription. And you're like, Thank you, God. But how long does that sense of thank you, God, stay with you? You know, this is the thing. And you, you swear to God, I, this should be, I'll be thankful, thankful to you every day of my life, etc. And even more so, far more than that, than a cancer scare, far more than that, is the sense that we have been condemned rightly and justly for our sins, but we by grace have been saved out of that condemnation. By pure grace. The problem with Israel at this time was that they really considered that they were believers. They wanted the day of the Lord, verse 18. They longed for the, the they desired the coming of the day of the Lord. But to what end is it for you? The day of the Lord will be darkness and not light. And then the rest of the chapter goes on to say, all your offerings to me, verse 22, are, you know, it irritates me no end. Take away from me the noise of your hymns, verse 23. I don't want to hear the melody. I want, 24, I want justice. And I want personal righteousness. And then verse 25, did you really offer to me sacrifices and offerings for 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You can read it as if he's saying, well, you didn't. Did you really offer them to me? No, you didn't. But I, I would say that rather than thinking that they actually didn't bother offering any sacrifices there, and I think the context is explained by verse 26, you carried the tabernacle of Moloch. And as Stephen quotes at the start of your God Remphan. So when they went through the wilderness, they were carrying two tabernacles, the tabernacle of God and also the tabernacle of Moloch, or your king, the RV says. So then... They carried two tabernacles. They were worshipping all manner of gods. I mean, Ezekiel 20 seems to say that when they went through the Red Sea, they carried the idols of Egypt with them through the water. And what he's saying is, yes, you did all that in the wilderness, sacrifices and offerings of 40 years, but you carried your other gods with you, didn't you? You had two tabernacles there in the wilderness. And this is the problem of being a religious person that inevitably there is a certain amount of ritual, there is a certain amount of going to meetings, 
uh, breaking bread, for example, this is quite normal and that this is required and this is how it is. But as soon as you are a religious person, the big psychological temptation is to think that I therefore am thereby justified. And you'd also carry on doing what you want. Desiring the day of the Lord, oh how we long for Christ to come. But there you are, practicing injustice. And uh, not being right in your attitude to the poor and marginalized. And this irritates God no end. And judgment shall come because of that. And at the breaking of bread, doing as we are a ritual, which we are asked to do by the Lord Jesus, which is quite right that we should do, inevitably you do ask yourself the question, Lord, is it I? You know, is it me who is going to betray you despite my being here, despite my longing for your return? He says in verse 17, there's going to be wailing everywhere. Verse 16, he says, there will be wailing absolutely everywhere in the streets. There will be wailing and lamentation, the funeral dirges, verse 17, because I will pass through the midst of you. That is exactly the language of Exodus 12, verse 12, where God says that he will pass through Egypt and slay their firstborn, and that there shall be weeping and wailing in every household, everywhere. <clears throat> so the point is, they were acting like Egypt, and so they were to be judged like Egypt. And later on in Amos chapter 7 verse 8 and chapter 8 verse 2, God says he will no longer pass over Israel. And that's again an allusion to how he passed over Israel on Passover night and didn't slay their firstborn. He passed through the land of Egypt, but he passed over the Israelites. And God says, <clears throat> chapter 7, verse 8, and 8, verse 2, I will no longer do that. Now, if we act with the spirit of this world, then we shall meet this world's condemnation. If you don't come out of Babylon, you shall share Babylon's judgment. And in talking about, actually, the breaking of bread in 1 Corinthians 11, Paul warns us to judge ourselves now lest you be condemned with the world. And we know Egypt is a symbol of the world. So this is what's going to be the, the punishment for the rejected amongst the new Israel. The rejected amongst the community of believers. You want to really act like Egypt in your heart? You are there with them? Go back. Just go back into the world. Just suffer their judgment. That's where your heart was. So go there. Be there with them. There is a line drawn, not between believer and believer, as has so often been misdrawn, but between the believer and the world. And it's as clear as light and darkness in the language of the, the Apostle John. And whilst, of course, God so loved this world that he sent his son to, as it were, on his behalf, come into this world and save this world, uh, there is to be this crucial difference between us and this world. And we have to ask ourselves, is there? I mean, really, is there any difference between the way we are living and especially the way we are thinking and feeling and the way this world is? Now, we are called to manifest God in this world. See, in chapter 5, verse 24, he, he says, I don't want all that stuff. All, it irritates me, all your rituals and all that. What I want is that justice shall roll down as waters and righteousness as a mighty stream. Now, there, 
the, the quotation is from Psalm 36, verse 7, which says about God, Your righteousness is like the great mountains, your justice is like the great deep, the, the great sea. And the point is, we are not to just stand and gawp and gaze at God's righteousness and his justice and approvingly say how wonderful it is. We are called to actually manifest that in our lives. In our lives, that justice is to roll as waters and the righteousness as mighty waters. That is how we are to live. Who he is is how we are to be in this world. And in that is all the difference between us and this world. In that is the line drawn. Not on paper, not in the sand, but in actual reality of life lived. So this is a challenge to us, is it not? But I return to what I said at the beginning, that the grace of God is amazing. They were dead. He says this. Um, their, their sin was huge. Verse 12. I know how manifold are your transgressions. And yet, although it's a funeral dirge, you know, you've died and that's it, I've judged you, I've slain you, there is still, at the very last minute, this huge possibility of repentance because God so wants us to come to him and for every moment now in your life, for every uh, aspect in your life now that that, that you uh, regret, that, that you earnestly wish to put right. You know, God is almost heartbroken with joy. And he absolutely wants to accept us and is eager to do so. <laughs>